Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to the Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to Kerini Doherty, the writer and critic whose new memoir, Thin Places, connects the painful history and the subtle magic of the Irish landscape. Kerry grew up in Derry in the 1980s at the height of the Troubles. Living on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, Raised by a Catholic mother and a Protestant father, and dwelling between the brutalities of modern-day poverty and the dark mythologies of the Celtic fringe, she's a native of liminal spaces, including that of trauma. In this episode, we talk about the moment when she realised she had to learn to flourish rather than to merely survive. Hi, Kerry. It is so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for agreeing to join me. Oh, thank you for having me, Catherine. It's really lovely to be on. Thank you. So I um, I got to read your book a couple of months ago now. Very lucky to have had an early copy. And as soon as I started reading it, I knew I had to talk to you on the podcast because mm. it really is about so many different winters that you experience growing up and as an adult. And it's just completely beautiful. And I hope everyone will buy it and read it for themselves. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's really interesting because before we started the recording, the first thing I did was ask how to pronounce your name properly <laughs> because you switched your name. And 
this is like a key to a lot of your story, isn't it? Yeah. You made the decision to switch your name into Irish spelling and pronunciation a little while back. Yeah, I did a number of years ago. And it was an interesting choice, I think, because I didn't learn to speak Irish at all um, because of the school I went to. But I just had become increasingly drawn and increasingly aware of the fact that my identity was Mm. somehow linked with the loss of the ability to speak the language. So, Mm. yeah, I did quite a bit of research um, into my own family background. And in the story I talk about, as you know, that no one on either side of my family line learned to speak Irish. So it really was quite a big deal um, to do it. So, yeah, it's Kerry Nidoherty. And the knee means? <laughs> the knee means daughter of. So it just means that I am from the Doherty family and that I'm unmarried. And if I was a boy, I would be, oh, I'd be old Doherty. Amazing. It felt like a very small thing that I could do that might help me. It's almost like a key that might take me in a little bit deeper and allow me to move a bit more into the parts of my like history and identity and culture that I felt had been kept uh, away from me because of the history of my homeland. Mm. So let's dig slightly into that via your own history. Um, so you grew up in Derry in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I grew up in the 80s in England and our news was full of your news at the time of, of the troubles yeah. and all the terrible things that your community went through during that time. But we're going to talk today about you returning to Derry uh, in around 2018 to go back there and and you stopped drinking at that point too. I wonder if you could sort of tell me how that came about. Yeah, so I I actually moved back um, a little bit before I stopped drinking. So I actually moved back um, the year of the Brexit vote. I moved back uh, in the April before the Brexit vote. So I obviously didn't know at all when I moved home what would be entailed really in that yeah I had been living away for you know for kind of like most of my adult life but felt I'd kind of reached a real a really dark period and I knew that a lot of the healing that I needed to do because of the trauma that I'd experienced in my life was I somehow knew that it was held in the land where I came from specifically in the city that I'd experienced most of it so yeah I moved home and then obviously the Brexit vote came and it just, I suppose in a way, it really defined the rest of the time in which I lived in the city that I came from mm. for the first time as an adult. Yeah. It's been quite a quite a wild ride. <laughs> you know, it's had an extraordinary effect really, hasn't it? Yeah. It, oh, it definitely has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I picked out a quote from your book that I wanted to read out, actually, that I think sums up a little bit about how you felt about returning to Derry because early on when I was reading uh, I wrote in the margin why did she go back to Derry (laughs) Um, and I think we we might uncover that later but I but I just wanted to read this quote to kind of frame the way you see it there are places that are both hollowed and hallowed all in one what is that noise in my room hang on a sec (laughs) oh my god I think my next door neighbor is sweeping her chimney (laughs) Oh, for the love of yeah, God. That's a that's a thin place thing right there, you know. That is. It's Any, a thin wall. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it's something that is hallowed and hollowed in the Irish tradition. <laughs> it's actually really quite, it feels quite special. You know, the hearth 
in Irish tradition and folklore and culture is literally the kind of the thinnest place in the home. It is the place that holds all of, you give all of your sorrow to the fire, you give all of your wishes and desires and your promises to yourself. So oh, it's quite intriguing. <laughs> that's amazing. It it wouldn't surprise me at all because my next door neighbour is just this wonderful kind of slightly witchy woman who, if anyone was going to pick up on this, would be right in there. Incredible. Oh, that's so noisy. Can you hear it from where you are? I, I can hear it, but it's not annoying, really. <sighs> I think she's stopped. Oh, she stopped. Right, I'm going to try and read that quote again. Hang on. <laughs> there are places that are both hollowed and hallowed all in one. They have wounded us, but we must return to them if we want to try and loose their tight hold on us. The places watch as we lose our way, as we are sent away, as we run away. They wait in stillness for us to find our way back. And that's about your relationship with Derry, the fact that you had to come back to this place that was such a site of trauma for you. Yeah, it was really beautiful to hear you read it, actually, Catherine. Really lovely. Um, (laughs) It was... I suppose, a real cusp moment in my story Mm. where, so in the book, I discuss how that I use particular places in the landscape as a form of healing. And I'd been going to places um, when I lived in Scotland, when I lived in England, I'd also been going to Wales. Places have always had that hold over me. But then I think I realised when I was at a real breaking point, actually, in my life, I realised that the place that I thought I'd buried away actually was the place that held the answer, really. Mm. So you moved back to Derry with your partner. Yeah, my partner um, lived in Derry and and we'd only been together for a a handful of a very small amount of time, long distance when I lived in Bristol. Mm. And it was quite a big decision, I suppose, for him as well to allow this person who was in probably the lowest part of their life mm. kind of move wise and um, state wise to move in with them and I suppose to be the safe place that I would that I would go to especially, mm. especially because I think at that point when we'd been together any discussion that we'd had in the very very early months was a more of a long-term thing you know that eventually had hoped that my partner would move to Bristol and live with me there but not entirely sure if Something about the process of falling in love with someone, having someone kind of care for me, maybe brought it all out a lot quicker. Maybe I wanted to heal or I knew I needed to heal in a much much more obvious way because it was no longer just me that was experiencing, I suppose, the negative side of of what I'd lived through. There was suddenly someone else. I suddenly felt as though... It might not have been that, but in hindsight, it feels like potentially that my partner could have been a very big part of me understanding Yeah, that my home, my hometown was part of the answer. Well, it becomes, I think for you, like a kind of catalyst for delving into your past, but also beginning to understand your response to it, you know, beginning to yeah. see it as trauma rather yeah. than, I don't know, just various things to escape from exactly, and realising that you're drinking to dull that trauma. Totally. And I do feel like, I think it's a fairly commonly accepted thing that 
people do run away from places as well as from people and as well as from situations. And sometimes it's quite difficult to untie the threads. So we tie them all up together. So I talk Mm. about this a bit in my book where different places where I've experienced, as you said, trauma in different places. And suddenly the place itself becomes really mired by the experience, Yeah, you know, which is a an utterly devastating thing, actually, because what it can mean for people who've experienced abuse or trauma or violence or or anything really in places that they really loved, you know, people can end up never going back to their hometown. I know some people who mm. have never once returned home, you know, to different places, not just in the north of Ireland, but, you know, people who come from places where they've experienced worse things than I have. It's hard to imagine what those things would be though, Kerry, because your childhood was full of horrific events that from the outside seem impossible to survive, but you you show so much resilience. Can, can you describe the dairy of your childhood, the kind of atmosphere that was in place there at the time? Yeah, I think it's, it's always very interesting to discuss dairy with anybody who who is not from there I suppose there's always something held in between the description and the reality yeah. and I, I think that increasingly that's something that's being acknowledged in various discussions around trauma so when people are from the same place I know people who are also from dairy who also grew up in and around the same time but didn't experience those things again that's something I write about in the book you know I went to a fairly it was quite posh at the time, the school that I went to, and it's not anymore, but it was at the time. <laughs> and a lot of the people that were in my class wouldn't have had a clue about yeah. what was happening on housing estates or, or anything like that. So I think it's really important to note that there are lots of dairies. Yeah. There are lots of dairies in the 80s and hindsight, like looking back, I'm always really intrigued. I think it was Robert McFarlane talks about childhood as being another place almost in itself. It's like Mm. the equivalent of a Fenland or, you know, where we look back at it. And of course, you're looking back as who you are now. I suppose writing helps us to try and place ourselves back to where we Mm. were, how we felt. But it is very difficult because with trauma, trauma distorts reality and can make you forget things and can make you hide things away or can make some things feel like they were a bigger deal than others. So I suppose when I think of Derry now, only recently, it's been only really since, probably since I moved to this cottage that I live in now, where I've been able to fully get an overview of, weirdly, the Derry of my childhood rather Mm. than the Derry that I just left. Yeah. Well, I think if I had to describe it, I would describe it as feeling totally normal in the way that childhood (laughs) always feels for anyone I've ever I've worked for years with children who are experiencing trauma who are experiencing every day it's part of the fabric of their life I've taught kids where their everyday life has just been when I look at it I think oh my goodness that's horrific it's harrowing but it's Mm. fully normal for them and I guess obviously you know, children who live in serious war-torn areas now, children who are in refugee camps. I can only try to imagine that when they look back at their childhood, they'll still have the memories of, well, it depends. Some people hide trauma away or some people forget as well, I think. Mm. But I think in general, when I think back 
on my childhood, there are things that glisten. You know, there was a lot of muck and mire and a lot of a lot of deep trauma. But yeah. you know, I tried in the book, I tried in thin places to sort of get across the idea that even in the midst of real heartache and sorrow and loss and fear and struggle, there can be these glistening moments mm. of beauty and of resilience building and of nurturing and of hope, really, I think. Yeah. And it's it's an incredibly redemptive book that really comes across, you know, the the way that it's possible for us to heal despite the traumas that happen to us, or perhaps even because of them, perhaps that healing, yes. that healed self is very particular to the self that's been through trauma. I think so. Mm. I think increasingly there's going to have to be more dialogue around around what you've just so beautifully said, the healed self, because I think mm. that we, uh, a lot of us have been brought up with this idea that there is a centered us that's that's just completely who we are, and mm. that anything we've been through that we will always carry it with us, or that you know that things will always remain how they are. And I completely reject <laughs> that as yeah. a concept. I believe yeah. that we always make a choice. And for a long time, I chose to try and drown out things that I'd been through by alcohol, by extreme self-hatred, by mm. by then also being quite abusive to someone very close to me. And then eventually really properly broke down. And I suppose I had the choice to do one or other things. I could just keep in that cycle that was that felt unbreakable or I could step out. And I I think with lots of intergenerational trauma, which I believe is an incredibly important thing in the north of Ireland, I think on the island of Ireland in general, mm. because of what we've been through before the troubles. So, yeah. you know, looking at famine and looking at sort of colonialism and um, loss that has seeped into the soil, really, and into the people. I was talking to an Irish friend a few weeks ago, funnily enough, and because oh. I, I went on a holiday to... Um, Ireland last year. And I said, what amazed me was all these beautiful old houses that were left in ruins. And she said, well, what you don't understand is the trauma that's associated with those big houses. You know, the abuse that happened quite regularly, as you say, the colonial past. She said, like, these are sites that nobody wants to touch and they're littered all over my country. And I, I found that really startling because I think we in the UK mainland only barely understand it. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that there's been a balance and act in Ireland that's kind of found a funny tipping point in recent mm. years where people that have long been silenced and stories that have long been like suffocated, hidden away are beginning to rise to the surface. And the thing is that spaces like land mass houses and places like uh, mother and children mother and baby homes and Mm. there's been an increasing clamor for I I suppose we need we need to listen we know that we need to listen more and I think that's making its way to other other places the UK and sort of other places are listening to the stories that Ireland is beginning to tell I think it's ultimately a good thing I think that with any sort of trauma or persistent I guess long-term uh, damage that's been done to places and people there there is a definite way of allowing things to come to the surface and to be safely held allowing the yeah. people who share those stories like of abuse and you know 
really horrific things. It, there's a, especially for women, actually, in Ireland, there's mm. an increasing move towards safe holding, which lots of us are really ready for, I think. Yeah. And and actually, one of the other quotes that I wrote down of the many was, <laughs> um, grief is more like a moth than a butterfly, you wrote. And I think... Yeah. That speaks such a wonderful truth. You know, it's, there's a different kind of beauty there, but there's also that okay. attraction to the dark and that association with the, the colder times. Totally. But nevertheless, something fragile and extraordinary that's there amongst all of those people you're talking about. Totally. And something that is its own thing. I mean, mm. when I, when that sort of idea came to me of the the grief moth thing that you just read I think that was when I really fully began to realize that there is I'd spent a long time defining myself in a negative way by the loss and the grief I'd experienced and the sorrow and then I think eventually it just sort of dawned on me that there is something that's in me and in other people who have had particular experiences in their life is different from if I hadn't have had those experiences and it doesn't necessarily have to be different in a good or a bad way it's just different in a different way but when you look at a moth or you look at a butterfly for me they're both exquisite and they're both so beautiful but there's something about a moth that speaks like grief does that speaks of fragility delicacy and resilience which is yeah yeah they're pretty good things I think (laughs) they're pretty good things they're very adaptable as well you know the ones that change their colors to suit their environment they're fantastic things yeah and like there are particular moths that have been so I live right beside the the central bogland of Ireland Mm. and there are particular moths that have been flying above the bogland that are birthed in the bog that you know that are born on the on the bog Mm. cotton and they're the same variety of moths that have been flying there since people were building stone circles in the hills around here you know they're they're literally hardcore (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, they're the true irish residents exactly (laughs) that's wonderful we'll be back with more from kerry in a moment but first i want to tell you about my online course wintering for writers which is back online after a successful first run this summer wintering for writers is designed to be a beautiful reflective process for writers who are currently struggling as so many of us are in this pandemic year if you're feeling blocked or are losing hope it's packed with videos and thought-provoking texts to help you to rethink your practice And there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on courses or follow the link in the show notes. And now back to Kerini Doherty. I just want to outline your story slightly for the listeners, but I don't think it's fair to make you dwell on it necessarily, but just to tell your story a little bit. You grew up as the daughter of a Protestant father and Catholic mother. Is that right way round? That's correct. Yeah. And so that meant that as you grew up, you felt like an outsider in loads of different ways. And at the height of the troubles, you know, your father got tangled up in things and found himself carjacked, which must be absolutely terrifying. And after he 
left your home, that meant that you were vulnerable to attacks from the outside because you no longer you were you know you no longer had a Protestant in the house, so you were now a Catholic. Yeah. And there's a, a absolutely chilling scene in your book where your house is firebombed, and you you know you wake up to the to you, or your cat wakes you up um, yeah. to the house full of smoke. Yeah. And there's this sense of kind of raw survival throughout your childhood. But also there's this sense that you survived and others didn't. You know, there's so much loss around you in so many different terrifying ways. Yeah. And I I think, again, <laughs> the trauma seems inevitable to me. But when I speak to you, you kind of like, oh, well, other people suffered loads too. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how it feels in, I mean, Northern Ireland in particular and Ireland in general? Is that the... The experience of living there, of of yeah. being party to suffering in so many different ways from so many different people, that almost it doesn't seem exceptional. Yeah, it is a very, very difficult thing to write about what you've been through when you're from the north of Ireland, because mm. no matter what, I mean, already I've had various messages from a variety of different people um, who've kind of said things along the lines of, it should be my story being published because this, this <laughs> happened to my father and this, that and the other, which right. is completely understandable because the thing is that the human condition is such that I feel from experience that we have an inbuilt victim mentality that's there because we are actually an empathic creature, because mm. we are so empathic. It actually creates this almost, I suppose, is it like a measuring up? against other people and against ourselves. So there is always that thing of you're kind of almost constantly being told you you're telling yourself, but then other people are telling you too. Well, if you'd been born 10 years earlier, it would have been much worse. Yeah. Or um, if you'd had children during that time period, imagine how hard it would have been then. Or <laughs> it doesn't just happen when you're from the north. That happens. Like I hear mothers doing it to other mothers. Like I've recently... Yeah. Through the pandemic, I've seen things even on Twitter where it's almost been like a competition. <laughs> you know? Yeah, competitive so, suffering. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it's really, really human. But I think I came from a situation where everyone around me seemed to have an idea that their suffering was more was more like suffering, was more valid, or because they'd mm. suffered a lot, it somehow meant that it was to stop me from suffering. And I do think. Yeah. You know, there's this this term, sort of ceasefire babies. So children that were born in and around the, the ceasefire, the, the ending right. of the troubles, they're the ones that technically should should have suffered the least. But actually, the suicide rate <laughs> amongst that group of people is exceptionally high. The un unemployment is so high. Like it's so interesting, isn't it? My generation and the and the youth that have come after, we're still carrying those scars. Mm. They might not be against as harrowing a backdrop. I mean, there might not be constant bombs and sort of constant rivalry amongst sectarian groups. But the thing is that sometimes it's a lot harder to map the trauma that settles in on the like of people that come in the middle of something or in the or in the part after 
and it's it's more indirect somehow you yeah. know like you can't get a handle on it, it in, in yeah. a way it's a gift to be able to say well actually I'm traumatized because this happened to me because you can work with that but hold it in your hand somehow if you've got something yeah. you can as I do think for for me myself I have created that difficulty that I've gone through as well by accepting constantly when I was told that my suffering wasn't valid that my mm. feelings weren't valid that my experience wasn't bad enough yeah and it ends up that you then you're lying to yourself constantly and then one day you just kind of sit down and you realize that it's totally okay to feel ache and deep sorrow at a lost childhood yes I did mm. have a childhood but it could never be anything other than the childhood that it was which was one that you know my two my parents did what they could within their ability where we lived to keep us safe and I'll be ever grateful for that but the thing is when you've got something raging around you and two really young people they were very young um Mm. they were just trying to just trying to do their best in a situation that no parent should have to should have to cope with no parent should have to go through that and I know even in saying this now I can almost hear people saying in the background of my own mind, well, you know, people lived through the Second World War and had children or people live or currently, you know, walking across Sudan with, you know, unaccompanied minors. So everybody has some form of idea of suffering that's Mm. somehow more valid. And I think in recent times, the pandemic has brought something out in people that I hadn't really seen in as extreme a level as what I'm seeing now, where when someone posts about having a bad day on Twitter or Instagram. You don't know what a bad day is. (laughs) But all these disclaimers underneath, like, okay, I know how lucky I am. P.S. I know I should be really grateful. You know, and I sometimes feel like, yes, we need to hold the experience, the greater picture, but it is really quite detrimental to your own person if you're consistently telling yourself that you don't have the right to hurt. Yeah. It's so funny, just before this conversation, my friend texted me and she's been quite unwell lately. And I said, I'm so sorry you're having such a hard time. And she texted back, well, everyone's suffering at the moment, aren't they? And I texted her back and said, like, that doesn't diminish the fact that you personally are suffering right now. You know, you can't defer it. I know. You shouldn't feel bad about it. Like, these are hard times and everyone is, you know, going through their own particular thing and your stuff is relevant. Completely. And empathy, I'd like, I fully feel like I'm constantly trying to work on my empathy because mm. I, in a weird way, somehow one can overdo empathy and then it affects, and then you don't give yourself any empathy. Yeah. But then the balance still has to be there. So I, and I'm, I'm okay to admit this. Like I, occasionally I see people complaining and I think, oh, you've got such a, you know, your life is so good you know, get it together. And then I have, to, <laughs> yes. I have to stop myself and remember that it's totally okay for everyone to feel that at that moment, what they've gone through is really hard and mm. they'd rather they didn't have to go through it. And I think that we'll see how the months and the years after the pandemic end up going, but I'm intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by that sort of, by this benchmark idea um, or yeah. this kind of, who gets to complain? Yeah. What are we, what are we going to start saying? Like, 
unless you spent a month in hospital <laughs> and several family members have died, you've got to pipe yeah, down, you know, yeah. like actually some of the people that are, that are really struggling at the moment are the people who've been relatively untouched by it, totally. but they are kind of locked away in absolute fear of it coming, yeah. you know, like that's a... You think it's a big thing. It's not a direct form of suffering in terms of the fact you're not sick, but that fear is absolutely huge for loads of people. And that loss. I mean, mm. it's a collective grief. And I think that there's something about, maybe this is a terrible thing for me to say, but I do think that there's something very particular about a sort of a shared generic grief that affects, mm. that it's almost like it affects us deeper because so many people are suffering. And I think like with Northern Ireland as well, that's the same. So I, I have friends who grew up more or less completely untouched as they would mm. say by the troubles like they had no real direct experience of it and if they heard about things that happened to me it was like it was difficult for them because they only saw it on the news or heard about yeah. it you know whatever newspaper but they still I think they're still carrying something of it in their respective a lot of the friends in my year group like lots of us don't keep in touch with each other which a lot of my English friends would find like really quite strange. Mm. And the generations that come, like my siblings, do keep in touch a lot more with the people that they went to school with and they have like right. lots of meetups. And I do think that if we really unravel that, that there is an element of um, like a trauma that's not really properly unraveled there. It's, a, it's almost a kind of distributed trauma. Totally, yeah. Where the mm. trauma that's been experienced by a handful of people in a, gr- in a group all kind of floats up into the sky and then falls down in a much more like evenly distributed way so that so I had like really difficult experiences but I do feel okay I mean I didn't Mm. for a long time but I do now but then there are people who maybe didn't have what they would say is any way near a bad experience but they still moved away straight away and they come back maybe once a year they have no involvement with the city that they're from. I know a lot of people who would have a real negativity if they were talking about dairy at all. They would be like mm. a lot of people are with places where they've come from, where there's been negativity or trauma in the past. Yeah. It becomes somewhere that you escape from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, there's a lot of that in people who, who would tell you, like if you were talking to them, they'd say that they didn't experience troubles, but they're mm. in my age group and You know, the bulk of the people I went to school with live in Australia, America, New Zealand, London. I mean, I know, I think in my year group, there might only be maybe four, maybe five people out of the 130, whatever, that live in Derry. And then we jokingly wonder why there's Irish bars all across the world. It's like that. It's actually rooted in quite a traumatic history of people needing to get out. Completely. And there not being opportunities. I speak about that a lot in the book is that something that made it really difficult for me, my relationship with the hometown that I love and equally have been broken by. I suppose part of the difficulty that I experienced for a number of years was that I watched from afar as Derry just lost more and more and more, like more people left as soon as where they worked shut down. People left because there were no opportunities, there was no money. Even now, like with Brexit, obviously, it's increasingly difficult. I mean, during the pandemic, there was a point where Derry had one of the highest incidence rates in the UK. And, you know, I read an article on it and people were saying, well, it does have to do with the fact that Derry's on the border, but also it's 
one of the poorest areas. It's an area where we've got like high unemployment, high addiction rates still. Mm. I suppose it doesn't, it shouldn't have to take a pandemic for those things to be discussed. But since the Brexit vote, all of the funding's been pulled out for like addiction units in Derry, for all the good things. This is something that a lot of us experience who are from Derry or who live there and aren't from there. All of the good things that seem so full of hope and that you could really begin to see proper deep healing happening for the city are just lost. They just don't, Mm. they can't stay. And there's something that can lead you to either be really resentful of a place, even though it's not the place's fault, or it can leave you to just bury your head in sand and try to forget about the place. And we've got both from people who come from Derry in my age group. I love the way you say there. Oh, it's not the place's fault. Like the place is a a person yeah. because I I feel like that's how you see yeah place and and maybe actually maybe that's a good time to ask you about thin places and what they are. It's a concept I've been obsessed with for years, but yeah. it's not part of my culture. It's a it's a Celtic idea specifically, isn't it? Yeah, but you're really drawn to Cornwall, though, aren't you? As well, Catherine. You, yeah, yeah, you see. Well, Kent is also a Celtic yeah. area. It's one of the lesser known Celtic areas, exactly. but we are we do have um, Celtic culture here. Totally. It's just not as visible as it is in other places. I know, yeah. but it's still there. And I think yeah. there is something that particular people are drawn to it. Um, and whether or not that's a blood genetic whatever thing, <laughs> or whether it's just something, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, so thin places. Um, so yes, I do have a very particular view of place and I'm always I always feel a bit dodgy when I try to talk about it because I guess in nature and place writing recently there's been a lot of bashing of this idea of us viewing ourselves as separate from nature or Mm. separate from place or whatever which I completely agree with we are part of the natural world we are the natural world and as such we're fully responsible for it and it's not just it's not just there for our well-being it's not just there for like to make us feel better or whatever but I think because I am so fully embedded in the idea of the outside world and it has been the place where I've spent most of my time naturally I do have the view that some places do hold something Mm. it's not that they owe us anything or that we're taking anything from them but it's just that there are certain places in the world where when you go there you feel like you're neither here nor there. Um, you're you're not really in the moment necessarily. It's talked of a lot in, I guess, like the Christian world. So the Catholic Church um, would talk a lot about, you know, like ancient sacred sites where saints have been involved with and holy wells mm. and stuff like that. But my experience is that, yes, they can be very liminal spaces they can be very sort of special places Mm, and they they reside in this idea that the the veil between this world and the other world is very thin yes but that also kind of seems to be about what human stuff has happened here it's like the memorialization of stuff that happens in this world that kind of carries on echoing through time almost totally through time and through non-place almost so Mm. I think that when I try to describe thin places, it is very difficult to not sound kind of almost airy fairy, but they're, <laughs> yeah. they're really not. I mean, they can be brutal places mm. as well. They can, the feeling that you can get 
when you're in the type of places I've sort of tried to talk about in the book can be like really quite raw the experience that you have there doesn't necessarily have to be a good experience in fact a lot of the time places that I've spent time in I find it very overwhelming emotionally where I've come away feeling like I've been sick for weeks or something just because the the concept of meeting your own honest self somewhere Mm. is is sometimes a bit overwhelming and you've you seem to have like visited you know celtic uh places all over the the british isles and and you know even broader and you you seem attracted to those places like they i I get the sense that they they bring you into yourself in a way that maybe you struggled to be there completely at other times yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And um, I think when I've tried to explain it before, I've always said that it thin places for me, um, the way if you're a swimmer, like if you're if you swim outdoors, I'm not gonna say wild swimmer because I know there's a lot of like negativity <laughs> around that. And in Ireland, like we don't call it wild swimming, we just call it swimming. It's just swimming. swimming is outside, you know, you don't have to pay to go to the swimming pool. Like you can be, you know. Yeah. But we should call it free swimming. Free I think swimming, free yeah. swimming is the new term. Exactly. Yeah. So you, so I have a friend who's a stone carver and she talks about when she's in the river, that's the only time that she really feels like she, like the form of the body that she's in is the right one. Oh God. She says like when, when she's in the actual physical land-based world, she like feels almost like cumbersome or like she's not in the Mm. right body or something. Um, But when she's in the river that goes, and I, I would echo that not necessarily about the, the bodily element of it, but the the me, the actual core of me, that when I'm in the water or when I'm in a thin place, I feel like I'm okay with me, no matter how much I've been hating myself up until that point or struggling with the past or at times not even wanting to still be here, you know, and feeling really distraught and really negative. As soon as I'm in a place that I feel quite held, it's almost like you can rest back in the place. Mm. And I'm not saying that in any kind of taking way or in any kind of using the place way. I'm talking about being slotted back in almost. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, it, a kind of reset button being hit somehow. Totally, yeah. And it reaffirms. Mm. And it's like I said, it's not always good. So I went to, um, I talk about it in the book, I went when my grandfather so I had a really good relationship with my grandfather and when he passed away it was at a really low point in my life but he left me some money and I went on I knew I wanted to go on a trip and I went to Iceland and I went to a place called Vik I think I've pronounced it wrong but um (laughs) it's a black sand beach in Iceland oh yes which I've always wanted to visit it's it's incredible now I'd heard a lot of chat about it and I was on a I, I don't drive so I was on a tour bus with a lot of other people it was really really stormy January day and everyone stayed in the tea shop and I like obviously was going to the beach so I went to the beach on my own and it was a really devastating like hauntingly devastating experience for the whole time mm. that I was there it was harrowing is a word that I probably use quite a lot but I mean it really was the meeting of myself that happened there was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in anywhere in the UK or Ireland. It's really, really extreme. Mm. And it, like, I still dream of it. I still, 
quite often there's a part of there's a beach in Greencastle that's very similar in its layout and Greencastle's in Donegal in Ireland um, yeah. I think you've been there haven't you I went on holiday there last year and <laughs> I like, loved it yeah. yeah yeah so there's a beach there that has a very similar geographical layout and every single time I go there I'm overwhelmed by memory it's an echo of that place completely and it's like it's not a good thing <laughs> it's, no. a, it's the place probably if I had to say the thin place that I've experienced the most yeah the the most bleak experience we would definitely be there so it's not necessarily always good and it doesn't necessarily lots of people talk about thin places making them feel out of themselves whereas in the book I talk a lot about my experience is probably quite different in that like you said it really being in the right place that has that thinness and and where I feel like there isn't anything between me and everything else that I share all of the worlds with that can be a really grounding thing but not Mm. not grounding in the way of that we talk about um not even grounding in the way of standing with your feet in the soil not grounding in the way of breathing in the right way it's grounding in a way that it's like before all that almost yeah no I do yeah Kerry, it's been so beautiful to talk oh, to you. Oh, thank you, Kathy. Me too. And I, I want to stop there because it's just gorgeous and it leaves us with a gorgeous thought. And I mm-hmm. I think this conversation has been really magical, but I, I kind of love that my neighbour started sweeping her yes. chimney the minute you talked about me trauma. Too. I feel like you created another thin space just in the room. That was really quite special, by the way. I'd, I'd, <laughs> and I have to talk to you more about that. That's incredible. <laughs> Normally, that's the kind of thing you'd try and excise from the recording. But I think no. we need my my lovely neighbour um, doing that to to truly understand how these conversations work somehow. Completely. So I wish you really good luck with your book, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's all from us today. Thank you so much to Kerini Doherty for gracing us with her special kind of magic. Thin Places is available from all good bookstores and you can follow Kerry on Instagram as Kerini Doherty or on Twitter as Kerry underscore knee. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with winter. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.